I bring uh, greetings from the men's retreat. I was there uh, yesterday and Friday. We had a great time with about 35 guys and drove back uh, late afternoon. So I get back here to preach with you guys and share God's word. And I want to look at specifically verse 23 to 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, when this law was given to Moses, it was actually intended to restrict revenge. As Kelly was pointing out in the children's sermon, you know, the natural impulse when someone does something harmful to us is to respond. Uh, and actually, we want to respond with maybe a little more harsher response, right? Like if someone, you know, for instance, when I was a little kid, if someone made fun of my mom, thought I'd make fun of their mom and dad, right? I was going to get both of them, right? So like that's the natural response. In fact, it reminds me of an infamous NBA basketball game in 1977. It was Kent Benson's first game in the NBA. He was the number one draft pick for the Milwaukee Bucks. I think we got a picture of him. And there's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played for the Lakers. He'd been MVP of the league. He was kind of a, a stud. And, and Kent Benson had just played for the Indiana Hoosiers, played for Bobby Knight, and they just won the national championship. So here's this new rookie in the league going up against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Both were centers, 6'10 and 7'2", respectively. And uh, both of them were kind of jockeying for position in the lane. This is like two minutes into the game. And uh, when you do play basketball, you're actually able to kind of push and shove to get position in the lane. And that's what Kent Benson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were doing. And Kareem kind of threw an elbow at Kent Benson. And so he responded in kind. Uh, Kareem's elbow went into Kent's chest. Uh, Kent's elbow back to Kareem went into Kareem's belly. And so Kareem kind of keels over in pain. You could tell he's hurting. And then he gets up and he, boom, just punches Kent Benson, like knocks him out, lights out. Kent Benson, like a tree, falls down at 6'10". Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is kicked out of the game. He's given the highest fine in NBA history at the time. And it's just really remarkable. In fact, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar broke his hand uh, and was out for uh, 21 uh, days because of this big fight. It was a big deal. It's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. And that's kind of how life is, right? Someone does something to you, you kind of escalate. Well, this mosaic rule about the eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth was intended to restrict revenge to make sure that the punishment fit the crime. It was actually a law of mercy, if you can believe that. But Martin Luther King Jr., during the civil rights protests of the 1960s, pointed out that there's a better way. For he said this, that old law about an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. The time is always right to do the right thing. Martin Luther King, B, Martin Luther King Jr. believed in a better way. As a minister, he knew that Jesus taught a better way, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. To see what that better way is, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles, iPhones, Androids, whatever you use, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 38 to 48. Um, but before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired Matthew by your Holy Spirit to put pen to parchment that we might have your written word today, that we might have these powerful words of Jesus, the most famous sermon ever preached that still convict us today. God, we, we pray that as we read these familiar words that you might speak afresh and anew to us, that we might understand by your spirit how we might rightfully apply these words today. Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48, listen to God's word. 
Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's look again at those first few verses. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this text about turning the right cheek, turning the other cheek has been interpreted so many different ways throughout the history of the church. In fact, some people take a real strict interpretation of this text and they think that means that Christians should never take up arms. I think that would be a misinterpretation of the text in light of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, where Paul says that, you know, God has given uh, civil authorities power to impart justice. So I'm grateful that we have police officers who are often Christian who carry guns to protect us, right? To protect us from evil. So what is Jesus saying here? How, How are we to interpret this text in light of what Jesus is saying in the first century? How do we apply it today? Let's look again at those first verses. It says, do not resist the one who is evil. Who's the one who is evil? Now, usually when we think about the one who is evil, we think about the evil one being Satan, right? The devil, right? Right? But we know from James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote an epistle in James chapter 4, verse 7, Jesus, uh, James writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we also know from Matthew chapter 4, just the previous chapter, that Jesus, after his baptism, was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he was tempted by Satan on three different occasions, and every time, Jesus resisted the temptations of the evil one. So we know when he says, do not resist uh, the one who is evil, he's not talking about resisting the devil. We should resist the devil. However, it does inform us to recognize that when someone is acting evilly with evil intent towards us, chances are that they're actually succumbing to the temptations of the evil one, of Satan. For in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 12, we read these words. Paul writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When you think about the greatest acts of evil that have happened in the history of the world, who do you think it was that was prompting those acts of evil? For instance, in the 20th century, we had the Holocaust, where Hitler and Nazi Germany killed millions and millions and millions and millions of Jews. Who was it that prompted Hitler to act that way, the Nazi party to act that way? If you do a little research on the background of the Nazi party, you'll see that many of them were involved with the Thule Society of Germany, which was an occult 
It was an occult that was promoting Ariosophy, this uh, belief in a mythical Aryan superior race that came from German pagan religions. And they believed, they believed that there really was a superior Aryan race. But we know that's a lie from the devil. In fact, we know that Jesus says of Satan that he's the father of lies, and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so it was Satan who was leading the, these Germans to think that, yeah, they're a part of a superior race. Because if you read the Bible, it's very clear that everyone, men and women, are created in the very image of God. In fact, in the, at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. The Greek word for nations there is ethnos, or every ethnic group. So the idea that there would be one superior race is a lie from the devil because Jesus loves us all. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, all of us, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is no superior race. We are all created in God's image. So when others are being tempted by Satan and succumb to that temptation, we have to recognize that, that actually we're in a spiritual battle here. When someone hurts us, there's something spiritually going on that's not right. In fact, we know it because we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Every time we pray, we say, Lord, Father, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because we know we can't even go near temptation. We need God to deliver us from the evil one, from the temptation that Satan will try to bring. So when someone succumbs to temptation, that doesn't give them a, a license to act uh, improperly. But at the same time, it gives us perspective to say, you know what, in order for me to overcome this, to respond appropriately, I'm in a spiritual battle. I'm going to need to do something spiritual. Specifically, I'm going to need to pray. Notice what it says that Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How is it possible for us to love our enemies? I mean, they're our enemies, right? Our natural inclination is to hate our enemies. He's saying, love your enemies. How? By praying for our enemies. We need to begin to pray for enemies. We need to begin to pray for enemies so that God might help us to see them as, as he does, as those who have been created in the very image of God. That God might help us to begin to forgive as he's forgiven us. Have you ever been hurt? by someone so badly, it hurts so much that you think, I, could pro I don't think I can ever forgive this person. This, this wound is so deep. How can I possibly forgive them for what they've done to me? Have you ever felt like that? I, I know I did. Back in the 90s, I had someone do something to me. I was so hurt and wounded by that. I was so angry about the way I had been mistreated and so hurt. And I was actually, in, praise be to God, I was in a men's group, men's Bible setting. It was four of us. And uh, we were talking about, you know, prayer requests. And I was sharing about how I'd been wounded this, by this person. And these guys, in their wisdom, said, man, you've got a lot of, you got a lot of resentment there. You're going to have to let that go. If you're going to find freedom, you're going to have to forgive them because that's what Jesus says to do. You need to, you need to pray for them. I'm like, pray for them? I want to pray for their destruction, right? That's what I pray. Like, that's what King David does. If you read the Psalms, he kind of prays for his enemy's destruction. Lord, wipe them out. That's what I wanted to pray, right? He's like, no, no. That's not what God's calling us to do. In fact, St. Augustine says it beautifully. He says, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Resentment, holding on to a grudge, maintaining anger towards someone is like drinking poison. It kills you inside, and you're hoping the other person dies. It's just going to eat you up. So how can we forgive someone when they've hurt us so badly? Well, fortunately, in that little Bible study that I was in, one of my Bible study members pointed me to Matthew 18. 
So I'm going to take you there as well, just like they did for me. Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, uh, before this text, Peter is asked the question of Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Now that's a lot of times. If my brother elbows me seven times and I keep forgiving, I kind of feel like a doormat, right? I mean, that's a lot of times, seven times. And you would think that was excessive, right? But that's not what Jesus says. No, not seven times, but 77 times. And then the disciples are like baffled, like, how could you possibly do that? And then Jesus tells this powerful parable in Matthew 18, uh, picks up at verse 23. It says, therefore, Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I want to pause here just for a moment. 10,000 talents. Now, in order for us to appreciate the amount of money that that was, it helps us to know that one talent was worth 6,000 denarii. 6,000 times 10,000 is what? 60 million denarii. And one denarius was a day's wage. So this servant owed 60 million days worth of wages, an amount no one could pay off in a lifetime. In a lifetime. He has this, who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, which is true, nobody could pay that off. Since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. That's a lie. You can't pay that off. It's 60 million denarii. They're not going to pay that off. But he says it anyway. He's trying to convince the king. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's amazing. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii or a hundred days worth of wages, an amount that could be paid off in just over three months, right? A hundred denarii, that's a very reasonable amount of money. But seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that not sound familiar? Have patience with me and I'll pay. That was exactly in the Greek, it's the exact same words that the guy had said just previously. And I will pay you. And actually he could have paid him, right? A hundred denarii, he could have paid that off. That was actually a legitimate uh, proposal. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay off all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a tough, that's a tough parable. If you don't forgive from your heart, God's not going to forgive us, right? In fact, if, when we keep reading through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to talk about it in a couple weeks, but when we get to the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And there's like this one condition at the end of that Lord's Prayer. He says, you know, your father's not going to forgive you unless you forgive those who, who've hurt you, right? I mean, that's what we've got we to pray. We're supposed to live that out. And we think about the debts that you owe God, is it seven talents? Is it 77? Or is it 60 million? As I think about my life and how many times I've sinned against God and, you know, done things I shouldn't have done, said things I probably should not have said, 
or fail to do what I'm supposed to do? Man, I'm closer to 60 million than I am to seven. Anybody else? And if God is willing to forgive us time and time and time again, shouldn't we be willing to forgive others? To kind of round out that story about Kent Benson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a Muslim, and uh, he was interviewed many years ago by Byron Scott about, you know, are you regretful that you punched Kent Benson in the face? He goes, well, I'm, I'm regretful that I broke my hand, you know. But he never apologized for punching Kent Benson in the face. But Kent Benson actually forgave Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. What happened on the court that day was actually an act of assault. Kareem, Kent Benson probably could have sued Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had a lot of money. Could have sued him, right? But Kent Benson's a Christian. And he said, God taught me the importance of forgiveness through that incident. He learned how to turn the other cheek to practice what Jesus preached. Now, how are we called to pray for our enemies, to to, to be the kind of people who can turn the other cheek? Because Kent Benson explained in his testimony that it was only by praying for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that he was able to forgive him. And if you're like me, when my friends were kind of challenging me with that Matthew 18 text, and he's like, you've got to pray for them. And I'm like, pray for their destruction. They're like, no, no, pray for, pray for them. You know, I'm like, oh, man, I, I don't want to pray for them. And if you're struggling to pray for your enemies, if you're struggling to pray for those who have hurt you, I found that the best thing to do is actually begin by praying a prayer of confession. Confess my sins to God so that I can experience God's forgiveness, and I'm more readily able to forgive those who have hurt me. As Jesus is telling his Jewish crowd to pray for their enemies, to pray for those who strike them on the right cheek. Now we'll look again at that text, and it says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is pretty specific, to strike you on the right cheek. Now most of us are right-handed. I happen to be the weird one who's left-handed in this room, but most of us are right-handed. And if I'm going to slap somebody, you know, with power and force, I'm going to hit them with my right hand and strike them on the left cheek, the cheek that's opposite of me. So if I'm going to strike them on the right cheek, that means I'm back-slapping them which is actually an act of insult in ancient times. And it was not unusual that Roman soldiers would slap Jewish citizens across the right cheek as an act of insult because the Jewish citizens weren't abiding or obeying. In fact, it wasn't unusual for a Roman soldier to tell and command a Jewish citizen to carry his load for him even as far as a mile. So when Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone asks you to go a mile, go a second mile. He's talking about what Roman soldiers were doing to the Jews at the time because their principal enemy was the Roman Empire. That's who their enemy was. And the fact is that if... Well, if they begin to pray for their enemies, what could God do? What if the Roman Empire, in fact, what if the emperor of Rome became a follower of Jesus? How would that change the world? Well, you know, that happened. In 312 AD, Constantine, who was a Christian, became an em- the emperor of Rome. And Christianity went from being the persecuted religion of the Roman Empire to actually the official religion of the Roman Empire. It was truly amazing. And I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see the movie Colosseum. Anybody? It's a little, uh, it's on the History Channel. It's a, little, uh, it's a little documentary, and it's a little bloody, so mom and dad may not want your kids to see it, but it's pretty good. It's pretty accurate. And on the fifth episode, it talks about the fact that Emperor Trajan uh, wanted to make an example of the Christians because the Christians were refusing to bow their knee to the emperor. See, the emperor of Rome was supposed to be called Lord, but they said Jesus was Lord, and they weren't going to bow a knee to the emperor. And so he was frustrated by, their, by their, uh, their disobedience, and so he decided he was going to make an example of one of their leaders, the bishop of Antioch, a guy named Ignatius. So Emperor Trajan, he uh, has Ignatius arrested, 
and then travels all the way from Antioch eventually to Rome where they pick him to the Colosseum. And the plan was to put Ignatius in the middle of the Colosseum and then to let the lions loose so the lions would tear and kill Ignatius in front of everybody and everybody would see that this religion was fake because he didn't protect Ignatius from being killed by the lions. Well, it didn't go exactly the way Trajan had planned. You see, what happened is they, they let the lions loose and what happens? The lions circle Ignatius. They don't kill him right away. And here's Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, with a, full, a coliseum full of people and an opportunity to preach the gospel. And so he begins to preach to them about Jesus, and he tells them about Jesus and how much Jesus loves us and how Jesus died on a cross and he rose again and, and how he's not afraid to die because he knows the moment that he dies, he's going to be with Jesus. And then at that moment, the lions kill Ignatius, and everyone is shocked at the peace with what Ignatius was willing to die for this man named Jesus. And they begin to ask the question, who is this Jesus that this Ignatius was willing to die for? Why, why was he willing to die for this? Who's this Jewish man named Jesus? As they begin to explore who Jesus was and what Jesus said and what Jesus did, people began to follow Jesus themselves. And the church exploded with the killing of Ignatius. People were coming to faith in Christ. In fact, Tertullian, who was an earliest church father, he has a great quote here. He says that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Tertullian says that. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. God uses these martyrs who are willing to practice what Jesus said. They're willing to turn the other cheek and, and die for Jesus. And people wonder why. And then they begin to discover who Jesus is and they begin to follow Jesus. So they too might have the assurance of eternal life. In fact, when we think about praying for enemies, what should we pray for them? We shouldn't pray for their destruction. We should pray for their conversion, right? That's what John Stott says in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. The best thing we can do for our enemies, for those who have hurt us, is to pray for their conversion, to pray that their heart might be softened, their eyes might be open, to know that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, and then they will convert. They will repent from their wicked ways, from their evil ways, and they will seek to follow Jesus just as we do today. Yes, these earliest church fathers were willing to die for Jesus they were willing to turn the other cheek. They were willing to pray for their enemies because that's what Jesus did. They saw Jesus practice what he preached. You remember the story. It's in the Gospels. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out his sword and he, he strikes off and cuts off the ears of one of the soldiers who've come to arrest Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He heals the man's ear. And he says, he who lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. In fact, you know, our natural inclination when someone hurts us is to fight back. And we do that because we've got this little part of our brain. It's called the amygdala. And it sets off all these uh, hormones when we feel threatened, right? It's the fight or flight. And it's good that we have the amygdala because if we're ever out in the wilderness and like a predator, like a lion or a bear comes, we need to know what to do. We're going to run or we're going to fight. We've got to figure that one out pretty quick. And so it fires off. And the, the impulse is to fire off and act out and to respond. But she said, no, no, don't. Don't return evil with evil. Return evil for good. Do the right thing. It shows more power to control our response. In fact, Proverbs 16, verse 32 says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. It takes more power to, take, uh, to rule a spirit than it is to take a city. Isn't that interesting? Whoever is slow to anger, is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Yes, we are called to respond not with hate, but with love. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, said. 
He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. How do we love and respond in love to those who hurt us? By remembering that's what Jesus did. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, you remember he was arrested. He uh, was beaten by the soldiers. He, did, he turned the cheek, the other cheek. He didn't fight back. And then he's crucified on a cross. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we read the prayer that Jesus actually prayed for those who were killing him. Jesus prays this, Luke 23, verse 34. He says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they knew, know not what they do. Now, that's the ESV. The most literal translation of the English Bible, of the Bible in English, is the New American Standard Version of the Bible. I want to show you that translation of that verse specifically. Sometimes it's a little harder to read because it's kind of wooden, but it says this. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Do you know what the difference is? The same. It's the imperfect tense in the Greek. It means that Jesus didn't just pray this once. He was saying it didn't end. He continued to pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When people hurt us, we don't need just to pray for them once. We need to continue to pray for those who hurt us. Pray for our enemies. Pray for their conversion. Pray that their eyes might be open. Pray that they, like us, might be saved through faith in Christ. And why were the Christians willing to do this? Why was Jesus willing to, to die for our sins? Because he loves us. Not this much, but this much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In our postmodern world where truth is relative, where truth is based on one's experience, people aren't going to care how much we know until they first know how much we care. Every time we can respond with love rather than hate, when we can, as Proverbs says, to a kind word turns away wrath, Rather than getting angry and escalating in anger, that we can respond with words of kindness and love, that we can actually pray for those who hurt us and pray for their conversion and pray that God might do a work in their life and they might be changed as we have been changed, then we bear witness to God's great love. Yes, Jesus died because he loved us. And the earliest church was willing to die for Jesus because they knew just how much Jesus loved them. They were willing to pray for their enemies. They were willing to turn the other cheek. If we know Jesus loves us, if we know Jesus has forgiven us not seven times or 77 times, but closer to 60 million times, shouldn't we be willing to forgive those who have hurt us by praying for them, praying that God might change them as he's changed us, that they might come to know Christ as we have come to know him as our Lord and Savior, so they might be saved as we are saved in him. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you so much for your amazing love that you demonstrate that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the price for our sins with his death on a cross, and then he rose again on the third day. He conquered sin and death on our behalf so that we know that with full assurance that in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life, that in Jesus Christ, we have a new life. We're called to live as your citizens in your kingdom today. So God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to practice these words, to turn the other cheek, that when someone insults us, then we don't feel like we have to argue back but rather we can pray for them. We can go the extra mile when those ask us to do that, that we might pray for others just as you prayed for all of us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.